All right. Good morning, Salt City. Happy Father's Day. It's great to join you uh, this morning, and I'm excited to uh, be back, having a chance to open God's Word with you. So I woke up this morning, got out of bed, gym shorts on, was just putting my shirt on, walked out into the kitchen, and my kids had Father's Day presents ready for me. So I got a couple um, hearts cut out uh, with different faces on them. I got another kind of random craft that said Happy Father's Day on it. And then from my son Gabe, I got a rock in a plastic bag. And he handed me the rock kind of reluctantly. And he looked up at me and he said, Dad, I didn't know what else to give you because I don't really have anything. And basically what he was saying is, are you happy that I gave you something that was already yours? Are you happy that I gave you one of your landscaping rocks? And of course I'm like, Gabe, I'm so happy because to me, it's not about the rock. It's about my relationship with my son. It's that he loves me and I love him and we have this relationship together. And I think right now, because of everything going on in the world, we're asking this question of ourselves as Christians. We're saying, what does our Father in heaven want from us? And I think one of the responses that I'm seeing is some people are thinking that God wants us to have this attitude of like, I can do this. So we're trying really hard to be like Jesus. And and honestly, maybe we're feeling great about that sometimes, but we also feel exhausted by our sort of self-made activism. There's others of us who are looking at, at the situation And we're honestly just so overwhelmed by what's happening in our world that we're saying, I can't do this. And so we feel fearful and we feel frozen by what's happening in the world. But what we're going to see in this passage is that there's actually another way. And that's this attitude that I can do all things through Jesus. I can do all things because my father has given me everything that I need for life and godliness. And so what we're going to see in John 15 is that real life, the abundant life that gives us the motivation and the willpower to obey God actually comes from God. That real life is found in Jesus. So we're going to see three beautiful truths about this life that's found in Jesus. The first truth that we're going to see is that this life that's found in Jesus is mysterious. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John 15, and we're going to start out by reading the first three verses, and then we're going to skip down to verse 16. So the first three verses of John 15 say this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
And then skipping down to verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, if you were to start in John chapter 1 and read all the way to this passage that we find ourselves in this morning in John chapter 15, you'll see that there are many metaphors that describe this free gift of life that God has given us in Jesus. We have the metaphor of birth. We actually have a metaphor of wind. And we have the metaphor of life. And then the most common one throughout the Gospel of John is this agricultural metaphor. So Jesus is saying that his father is like a farmer and his father has planted a vine on the earth. And Jesus is saying, I am that vine. In other words, he is saying, I am the source of life. The only way to have life is to be connected to me in a vital relationship, the way that a branch is connected to a vine. A branch can't produce fruit on its own. You can't just take a branch and bury it in the ground and expect that after a short time that grapes will pop up on that branch because the life must flow from the vine into the branch and then the branch produces that fruit organically. And so Jesus is saying, if we want to live a life of love, we want to live a fruitful life, the only way is to be connected to him in this vital relationship. But then we read verse 16 to show how this relationship comes about. And remember, Jesus said, here's how this relationship comes about. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and so that your fruit should abide. So here's what he's reminding us. Not only does the life come from Jesus and flow from the vine and into the branches, but the connection that happens between branch and vine is not owing to a choice that we made as Christians, but is actually owing to a choice that Jesus made in eternity past. So here's the, here's the mystery of our salvation. Is it is 100% a gift from God. It is not something that we can boast about. The reality that we have Life is not because of any religious performance. It's not because of any activism. It's not because of any social concern or because we love our neighbor. The life that we have in Jesus, and and when I talk about life, I mean this, this pulsating activity, this spiritual life that is coursing through our veins in the same way that that life is in our blood stream in our first birth, this spiritual life is in our bloodstream through our second birth, that life 
is not owing to anything that we did. So Christianity is not a performance. It's not something that you can just go and do. It is a work of God. It is an infusion of life. And so really, at the end of the day, our salvation is kind of like a surprise to us. Now think back to your salvation. Maybe you went to a church service or you went to a youth group event or your mom or dad was kneeling beside your bed sharing the gospel with you. And you had maybe heard the gospel hundreds of times before that moment. And all of a sudden, people describe it as like going from being blind to being able to see. Or they describe it as the, the light bulb coming on. Or some people describe it as like a power that they feel inside of their soul for the first time. And yes, we believe. And yes, we receive it. And we're going we're gonna to get into that. But it comes as a surprise to us in that moment that we believe. And it's hard for us to even point to exactly why it was that youth group or that sermon or that text of scripture that led us to bow the knee to Jesus. And that's because what we're trying to describe is something that is beyond description. We're trying to describe life. And think about life, even in the physical realm, when you try to describe what life is, you might be able to describe its effects. You might be able to say, the leaf on the tree is green. That's how I know that it's alive. Or the person is moving their mouth or the person is waving their arm. So I know that they're alive. But when you get down to expressing exactly what life is or where life comes from, no one can describe it at its essence. And that's because life is not something that human beings are capable of producing. Life is always heaven sent. Life is always a gift from above. And I was reminded of of that this last week when I was listening to a sermon and the pastor who was preaching grew up during the 70s. And he was talking about a time during the Jesus movement, which mainly happened on the West Coast, kind of spread across the country, and a revival. And he was at a Larry Norman concert. He's at this Larry Norman concert and he says that, this guy, this MC, got up at the beginning of the Larry Norman concert and sort of in a monotone voice, this guy just walked up and said, hey, if anyone wants to get saved, just go over to that room over there. And like 50 people raised their hands and said they wanted to be saved. And he said it was literally the lamest gospel presentation of all time. And for whatever reason, God decided to superintend that guy's words and bring life to 50 people. Because at the end of the day, our salvation is a gift from God. And the reason that God sets it up this way is so that none of us would have any reason to boast. And so Jesus is saying Your salvation is owing to the Father sending me and me being like a vine and me choosing you to be the branches who are connected to the vine and that life flowing in to you. And so Christianity, real Christianity, is at its essence supernatural 
life. Okay, so now we're saved. We've stumbled into this whole Christianity thing. We've been surprised ourselves. Do you ever have those moments where you're just like, I can't really believe that I'm a Christian and that I actually believe this stuff. So now what do we do? The passage goes on to say that this life is not only mysterious, but this life is also received. Okay? Verses 4 through 5, and then we'll skip down to verse 10. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Skipping down to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So don't get the idea, just because this life is a gift from above, just because it's heaven sent, just because Jesus chose you, and that is why you are a Christian. Don't get the idea that you are to be utterly passive and to do nothing. The passage over and over again gives us this exhortation. I didn't even read all of the examples of this, but the command for us is to abide. So we have been connected to the vine in this surprise encounter with God in our conversion, and this life is flowing into us, and our responsibility now is to submit, is to be relationally connected to Jesus, to not let go of him, but to stay connected in this relationship with him. So there's actually not two ways to live. I think we often think of of there being two ways to live. You can either reject Jesus or you can depend on Jesus and, and abide in Jesus. But there's actually a third option. And that's that you can try to be like Jesus in your own strength. You can try to be like Jesus and follow after Jesus, not in dependence on him, but actually to try to establish your own righteousness, to be good, to try to be like God on your own. And I think many of you this morning, if you're honest, you're exhausted with trying to be like Jesus. You're just like, this is impossible. How could anyone actually keep the commandments of God. How does anyone have the energy to follow after God? And here's what Jesus says to those of you who would try to follow him in your own efforts. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what we're doing if we're trying to follow Jesus without depending on Jesus. We are doing absolutely nothing. Nothing. Our good works are not good when they're done in our own effort. What Jesus wants us to learn is to abide in him. And he describes here the contrast between self-effort and 
moment by moment dependence on him. And there's a few things that I'd like to point out. In verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So there's three things that I see that constitute abiding. So if you're going to abide in Jesus, first of all, you would have to read. I think when he talks about his commandments, he's talking about all of scripture, which could be in terms of a commandment or a demand that God puts on our life. What we're supposed to do is learn to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. So the first thing that we need to do in order to abide in Jesus is we need to abide in his word. We need to know his word. His word needs to become part of who we are. So maybe you find yourself abiding in the news cycle right now or abiding in worry, or abiding in the cares of the world, or abiding in your own ideas or your own thoughts. But what God is calling us to do is to soak ourselves in the Word of God, to love the Word of God, to abide in the Word of God, to know the Word of God. Do you guys need to... Like, change my batteries? Your pack just died. Oh, my pack just died. All right. You want to grab it for me? I don't remember where you put it. We need one of those cut screens that says technical difficulties. How long ago did it die? Two seconds. There you go. All right. So when we stop abiding, it's sort of like when your batteries go out on your mic and you're just talking and talking and doing nothing, but you think you're doing something. And so the way that, the way that we abide in Jesus is we get our batteries charged back up by getting into his word, by loving his word, and by his word filling our lives. So that's the first thing. We have to know his commandments in order to abide in him. The second thing is we, it's, not, it's not just knowing his commandments or knowing his promises. It's actually believing him. It's believing, like Peter said. Remember, Jesus gave Peter this really hard word. And, and Peter said to Jesus, but you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So it's actually that we see in the word that there is life for us. The commandments of God are not a burden to us, but we actually see that there is life in obeying the commands. But here's where many of us stop. We think if we just read the Bible and we believe the Bible, that we are then abiding in Jesus. But here's where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road when we obey Jesus. You see what he said? If you keep my 
commandments, you will abide in my love. Many of us are not experiencing the felt presence of Jesus because we've stopped at believing and we have refused to obey. So I'd ask you, are there areas in your life where you are refusing to obey Jesus? And and the Holy Spirit has been prompting you to forgive somebody or to start a daily habit of being in his word or to share the truth about Jesus with one of your neighbors. And you are saying, no, I believe that that would be a good thing for me to do, but I am refusing to abide in that teaching because I'm not going to do it. I was reminded of this truth the other night when I was giving one of my kids a bath. And so for whatever reason, my kids love to take baths, but they don't like to use the bath as a way to get clean because they don't like shampoo and they don't like soap. And so sometimes this goes really well. Sometimes it's just like, okay, let's put some shampoo in your hair, put the shampoo in the hair, wash the shampoo out. Everything goes great. But especially when my kids get tired, they don't like to abide in that teaching. And so what they do is they fight me. And sometimes what happens is I'll put the shampoo in their hair and I'll be telling them as they're tired, you need to close your eyes. Just need you to listen to me. I need you to trust me because you got mud in your hair. You got paint in your hair. You got something in your hair. We need to wash it out. And they refuse to do that. And so... Maybe they'll keep their eyes closed at the beginning. I'll dump some water on their hair and then they'll open their eyes and then they get the soap in their eyes. And so they don't experience the intent that I have for them in asking them to close their eyes because they refuse to abide in what I'm asking them to do. And so to actually stay relationally connected to me and to do what's best for them, they would close their eyes, they would let the shampoo wash out of their hair, and everything would be great. And often what we do is we say, yes, I know what you've asked me to do, Jesus. Yes, I believe it. But then when it actually comes down to doing it, we don't experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we don't experience the richness of abiding in Jesus because when it comes to the moment of truth, we say no. And as I was giving this child a bath, and as I was thinking about these things, I thought, this is so me. This is how I am with God. How often is he asking me to do something? And I know that his way is best. I know that what he's asking me to do is best. And I turn away from that. And then I regret that decision because I don't experience his presence and his power and the joy of walking with him. And what he's doing in this passage is he's calling us to this type of abiding where even when it doesn't make sense to us, we trust him. And he's saying, if you'll trust me, if you'll obey me, even when My commandments 
seem absolutely ridiculous to you, if you'll take the step, you'll experience the joy of walking with me. And so our motivation is not to perform good works for God. Our motivation is to stay connected to Jesus because we believe that in him is found life. So what would a life look like of consistently being connected to Jesus? The third thing we see in this passage is that this life is overflowing. This life is overflowing. Verses 11 through 14. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So this is why Jesus wants us to obey his commands. It's not because he's a dutiful judge who just wants us to appease him all the time. He actually wants us to have joy and a joy that is full. A joy that is so full that it actually overflows in practical service and love for other people. So here's the goal of our abiding, that we would learn the primary lesson of life, which is to love one another. So this is where this gets very practical, because here's the reality. Each of us wakes up each and every day, and we desire to do our own thing, to go our own way. We're filled with pride. We're filled with anger. We're filled with lust. And so what Jesus is calling us to do is actually to go on a counterintuitive path. This path of an overflowing and abundant life But the way that that overflowing and abundant life comes is actually over our dead body. Literally, we need to die to ourselves. And I think some of us think that we'll become so Jesus-y at some point in our life that we'll wake up and we'll just magically be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we will just want to, out of the abundance of our own heart, want to obey Jesus. But here's what the Bible teaches. Out of the abundance of our own heart, we will always want to run away from Jesus and not do what he says. So what Jesus is actually calling us to do is to abide in him moment by moment, every single day of our lives, for the rest of our lives. And what he's saying is, as we learn to trust in him and to turn away from ourselves and to the life that he has for us that we'll find that that actually brings us joy. This is so crazy. I I think we barely believe this. If we believe this, we barely believe this. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Don't don't we naturally think, this is just one example, don't we naturally think 
that it's actually by having other people serve us, by having other people's hearts and questions and lives centered on us, don't we actually think that that's what's going to make us happy? But what Jesus is saying is, your joy will never be full as a believer in Jesus until your life is about serving and laying down your life for other people. So let me give you an example of this, practical example. I've been reading this book by Corey Ten Boom kind of about her life after she was in a concentration camp. And this story is about her kind of moment by moment abiding in Jesus in the area of forgiveness. And you're going to hear her refer to Ravensbrück, which was this concentration camp that she was in. And she has this remarkable story where she actually was able to forgive a Nazi guard who was responsible for killing her sister. She was able to, in person, look him in the eyes and by the power of the Holy Spirit, love her enemy and say that she forgave him. And he became a Christian. He was a brother in Christ. And so you would think, right? You would think, She's done this great act of forgiveness by the power of Jesus. So now every other relational problem that she had in her life would be easy. She would easily be able to forgive everyone else. But this is what she says. I wish I could say that after a long and fruitful life traveling the world, I had learned to forgive all my enemies. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me and onto others, but they don't. If there's one thing I've learned since I've passed by my 80th birthday, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. I recall the time when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought that having been able to forgive the guards at Ravensbrook, forgiving Christian friends would be child's play. It wasn't. For weeks, I seethed inside. But at last, I asked God again to work his miracle in me. And again, it happened. First, the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my father. Then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, rehashing the whole affair again. My friends, I thought, people I loved. If it had been strangers, I wouldn't have minded so. I sat up and switched on the light. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me do it. But the next night I woke up again. They'd talked so sweetly too, never a hint of what they were planning. Father, I cried in alarm, help me. Then it was that Another secret of forgiveness became evident. It was not enough simply to say, I forgive you. I must also begin to live it out. And in my case, that meant acting as though their sins like mine were buried in the depths of the sea. If God could remember them no more, and he had said, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more, then neither should I. And the reason the thoughts kept coming back to me was that I kept turning over their sin in my mind. And so I discovered another of God's principles. We can trust God not only for our emotions, but also for our thoughts. And I asked him to renew my mind. He also took away my thoughts. He still had much more to teach me, however, even from this single episode. Many years later, after I had passed my 80th birthday, an American friend came to visit me in Holland. As we sat in my little apartment and barn, I asked 
He asked me about those people from long ago who had taken advantage of me. It is nothing, I said smugly. It is all forgiven. But by you, yes, he said. But what about them? Have they accepted your forgiveness? They say there is nothing to forgive. They deny it ever happened. No matter what they say, though, I can prove prove they were wrong. I went eagerly to my desk. See, I have it in black and white. I saved all their letters, and I can show you where. Corey, my friend, slipped his arm through mine and gently closed the drawer. Aren't you the one whose sins are at the bottom of the sea, yet the sins of your friends are etched in black and white? For an astonishing moment, I could not find my voice. Lord Jesus, I whispered at last, who takes away all my sins, forgive me for preserving all these years the evidence against others. Give me grace to burn all the blacks and whites as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to your glory. You see, even those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, even those of us who have seen Jesus work these miracles in our lives of being able to love and forgive other people, we still can do nothing apart from him. What would it look like if we began to more fully live into this moment-by-moment dependence? What it would look like is what it looked like for Corey Ten Boom. A cold-blooded decision. Did you hear that? A cold-blooded decision followed by a flood of joy. What's the cold-blooded decision that God wants you to make? How does he want you to love somebody in your family? Do you need to apologize for something that you did? Do you need to reach out to somebody in your life and call them and ask for forgiveness for something you did 30 years ago? There's something that God has been bugging you about. What if all of us just made one or two cold-blooded decisions to follow Jesus? Think about the joy that we would experience. Think about the joy that we would know. And why would we do this? Why would we live this way? Because Jesus made this decision. You remember this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is saying, I don't want to go to the cross. He didn't feel like loving us in that moment. But he looked into the future and he saw the joy that was set before him. And so he obeyed God on our behalf. And because of that, this life is now flowing into us and we have this opportunity to extend this free gift that we've been given to others. Would you join me in taking that next step of obedience that God has for you and abiding in him? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for... um, Corey Ten Boom, just her practical example of forgiveness. And, and thank you for this reminder that we, on a moment-by-moment basis, need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. How often do we try to go it alone in the Christian life? How often do we become discouraged? How often do we kind of put aside the clear commandments that you give us in and we put on sort of a religious front and we do some, some good things, but we don't do the things that you're actually calling us to do. We, we're not following after your spirit. We're not obeying you. And Jesus, I ask that you would help us to take the steps that you want us to take. God, on, if we're honest with ourselves, it, it doesn't look appealing. It, it looks 
horrifying. It looks like death to self. And, and so we need your spirit to overcome our resistance. Would you flood us with life so that we can live this life of truly abiding in you? Not just knowing your word, not just believing your word, but actually coming to the place where we obey it, where we actually do it, where we're in submission to you and we experience the joy of walking with you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.